You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun Show podcast. This week, what Google can teach you about the NRA. Conversations with Marcus Hyman, a firearms instructor that is hustling around here in the Washington, Maryland, and Virginia area to get everybody trying to learn about their firearm. He's teaching them. He's doing a great job. Going to have a conversation with him and with my podcasting battle buddy, Michael J. Woodland, on the best gun for beginners, which we don't agree on. (laughs) But it was a great conversation. Did you know that the New York State Attorney General and the District of Columbia are suing the National Rifle Association? I'm sure you've heard about it. I got a few things to say. All this and more coming up next. Blackmanwithagun.com Ken Blanchard's Pro-Gun Podcast Yeah, we're going to talk about the NRA, but I'm, I'm going to tell you off up front. I am not in that group that wants to dissolve it. I am not in the group that wants to keep it like it is. I think it needs some serious change. And hopefully if you stick around to the end of the show, you'll kind of hear my point of it after I give you the history. All right. First up is a guy I haven't physically met, but we know the same people. Believe it or not, his uh, family members and I were in a band together. Crazy world we live in. But before we get to Instructor Solo. God bless America. All right, this week I got a chance to meet a brother that I'm probably related to. Welcome, Instructor Solo, to the Black Man with a Gun Show podcast. How you doing? I appreciate it, brother. Man, this guy is teaching in the DMV. That's the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area for my international folks. And he has trinitytrainingacademy.org. You can find him almost all over the place in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. Um, as a African-American firearms instructor, how long you been in the space now? Um, on paper, I've been instructing for about six years. Uh, I've been in the guns for way longer. Uh, growing up as a youngin, uh, my my parents are from the South, uh, North Carolina, so that's kind of inbred in me. I got you. What made you want to start training people these days? Uh, well, I've been doing it, but uh, I see. I, Okay, so when we're looking at a, a TV show, a movie, and uh, I start seeing people with improper techniques, and I'm always ruining a movie for my family or wife. Like, why you got this? Just a TV show. But I started to see those imperfections, the, the grip and sign. I said, well, I need to get out there and start teaching uh, people how to do this thing because I love it. Um, it's not just a, a money thing for me. I actually love to do it. Um, uh, even working uh, eight years as a bail enforcement agent, and also work three and a half years in immigration. Um, it's just something that I just love to do. And when I see people handling a firearm based off a TV or a movie, I feel the need to correct that um, and help them do it safely. All right, cool, man. So you you got a little bit of law enforcement background, you were saying? That's correct. That's correct. Uh, three and a half years uh, I worked in immigration. Um and uh, I, I did powerlifting as well. So um, when I, I want to say I had to have surgery on my neck. I had a herniated disc, uh, which was pushing on the nerves of my neck. Ouch. Um, and I had I went and got surgery, played in there, screws. Um, and my thing was like, if I'm wrestling with an inmate and it hit me in my neck, I'm going to lose my mind. Um, so it was the safest thing um, to do was go ahead and uh, back away from it, um, which allowed me to do 
what I love, which is firearms training full-time on a full-time basis. So uh, once that happened, it hadn't slowed down since. Oh, nice. You just recently come back from elite shooting out there in, uh, is that Manassas or Ash? What's it, Ashburn? Right. Uh, it's Manassas. Yeah. Manassas, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. That is one of the nicest range I've been to. Absolutely. Um, so how I guess it got started was I, I talked to one of the uh, founders, uh, older guy. He's normally in there every now and again, real old guy, uh, taking pictures. And I said, hey, you know, when it started, like, where did it come from? So it was about three guys who had formed uh, one of the NRA ranges mm-hmm. um, in Vienna, came, left, and came and started this range here. And uh, by far is one of the best ranges I've been to. Uh, the climate is good. The number of ranges, uh, lanes are, are, are well. I want to say they have 225 and 50 in a 100-yard range. Um, the people are real nice. I haven't had any issues. Um, uh, and I'm there three or four times a week training um, students now. So um, it's, it's a real nice range, real nice. Yeah, that was always a big thing when I was teaching people. I wanted to make sure they had a good environment to learn. And there's a lot of ranges around, but not all of them treat their people right. Not all the conditions right. are right. Um, sometimes it's a hazard, and elite is just like its name. It's elite. It's it's pretty nice. So if you have, to, right. if to travel some distance to get to um, instructor solo, please make it happen. Um, you won't be disappointed. I'm gonna take care of you definitely. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, what's yeah. what's your um most popular classes right now? Um, I would say right now it's concealed carry. Uh, with the situation that's going on, I have a, a lot of concealed carry and. Pulling in second will be just the basic fundamentals. We have a lot of people just now getting into firearms because of the, the, the certain uh, pandemic situation and uh, everything you see on the news. It's like, okay, you know what, it's time for us to get armed. And I say, you're right. It's something that I say, um, stay ready. You don't have to get ready. Um, but I won't knock you for getting ready right now. Just let me help you do it the right way. I got you. Um, so by far, I would say concealed carry and then pulling in second is just the first-time learners. Is this basically for a Virginia only, or can Maryland people show up too? Absolutely. I, I equally uh, run Maryland and Virginia. I do have a lot of Utah, because I'm, I'm uh, licensed in Utah, uh, the state of Maryland, Virginia, of course, the Department of Criminal Justice, which is DCJS. Um, I'm a general and firearm instructor as well for that. Oh, you got that Virginia DCJS? I sure do. That's right, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do. Try to, you know, I try to have multiple strings, you know. Good on um, you, man. Good on you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, if I'm here, I can get you here. Get you here. So I, I do train for armed security, unarmed security, uh, bail enforcement, um, private investigators, the whole nine. I do research, um, advanced shooting, the whole nine. A good deal. What, what would be good for folks to know if they want to find you? Um, so recently, um, I was put on this site called um, – Shot Black, I believe. Um, and since then, uh, things have been going steadily. Uh, since I've become a a, a a site on this site, it's been blowing through the roof. A lot of African-American um, uh, people have been contacting me, and I love it because I love, I train anybody, but I love when our people come, can come together for, for good and, and get educated on the proper way of doing things and handling firearms. Um, so you can contact them um, through that site. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, my website, um, my phone number, and I receive. Anytime you call me, text me, email me, I get right back to you. Sometimes the wife will give me, wait a minute, this is like 11 o'clock at night. I said, listen, I got to respond to my people, you know. Um, so I try to make myself available. She does make me turn my phone off on Do Not Disturb <laughs> like one, one day a week, and I understand that. I understand that, you know. Uh, married for 18 years. I got five boys. Uh, so I definitely got to get the family at time. Good on you, man. So what's that number? That number is 301-338-8613. And how can folks reach you if you're on Facebook? Uh, the Facebook is uh, Trinity Training Academy um, or Trinity Tactical Training or Trinity or Trintac. Um, but the main one is Trinity Training Academy. Um, you put that in, it'll get you. And you do that on Google, you get it on Yelp. Um, also, the same name, it'll come right back to me. All right, guys. If if I got any questions, you can contact him. His number is three zero one three three eight eight six one three, and uh, you might know him as Instructor Solo. 
but he's also known as That's Marcus. Right. He's a good dude, man. Correct. I appreciate I appreciate this opportunity, uh, Mr. Ken. Um, I just spread the love and getting you know the safety is number one. I tell people safety's first. I'm gonna show you how to safely handle that firearm, and I'm gonna show you how to the fundamentals on how to operate that firearm. Um, those two go hand in hand. Man, this is um, I'm actually doing what do you call it when you. This was done to me 20 years ago. I got a chance to be on WOL 1450 AM radio back in the day, and um, Kathy Hughes let me on the, on, the, on the set, and the DJ at the time in the radio station, Bernie McCain, allowed me to advertise my instruction, which wow. got me a whole bunch of people. And um, wow. I started a gun club after the second time I was on the air because he helped me so much. I mean, just people not knowing about wow. And then this was like in 1991, dude. And uh, wow. um, so now that I'm in podcasting like I am, I'm doing it forward. I'm doing the same thing to the brothers that are coming behind and, and doing it. Yeah. Now, I've been, man, I've been following you for a while, man, uh, checking out your stuff, man. I ordered some of your patches, man. I got, I'll be rocking two of your patches <laughs> on my stuff, man. It's the black man with a gun. Kim Black, I said, yeah, I, said, I like that. I rock it on my stuff, man. Absolutely. It's before I even really, you know, um, man, how long ago was that? I can't remember, but I ordered two of them. I said, I got to get those, man. Thanks, man. I think I ran across you maybe on Instagram, I believe, or one of those uh, social media platforms. Oh, cool. Um, and I said, let me get on that. Um, so I definitely, and then I had to I said, oh, the Reverend Ken. I said, okay, right. So I've been peeping some of your stuff, man, definitely. Thanks, man. Well, you, you guys have heard it, and this is uh, this is a good dude. So make sure you call him up now if you're looking for a class, and I'm going to make sure that I put you on speed dial. So whenever somebody says, hey, man, who who can I go to? I'm going to say, Brother Hyman, Instructor Solo. Ah, that's right. I'm there. I'm there. I take would definitely take care of you. All right, man. Thanks for, so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Since 2014, I have been a member of the Crossbreed Holster family. If you carry concealed, get a holster that supports not only your firearm, but your freedom, the faith, and this brother with a triad-free lifetime guarantee. Crossbreedholsters.com Crossbreedholsters.com All right, my main man, Michael, is back, and we got a question this week. Somebody asked me, what should I buy? I'm a new gun owner. I want to buy something for my family. I want to buy something for this to shoot. Um, I'm new to this thing. I ain't new to shooting. I, I shot when I was in uh, 4-H club, I think they told me, and I was like, mm-hmm. Uh, so here we go. Here's our question, man. What do you think? Well, first thing I think, everything always comes back to money. So what you can afford is always going to play a big part in the first thing that you get. The second part of that is comfort. So my analogy for comfort is if I wear a size 13 shoe, why would I buy a size 10 shoe and try to squeeze into it and then walk around and be cool with it? You know, so same thing. If the handgun doesn't fit in my hand properly, I want to get something that fits. But at the same time, I also want to get something that I can afford. So those are the two most important factors of getting a handgun for a first-time user is I can tell them all, everything they want to hear, but some things are not going to resonate with them because they don't know what they don't know. I know, right? So give me an example of some of the questions of some of the stuff they're looking for you to answer for them that they want you to agree on and signify. I would actually say outside of cost. Don't get the smaller gun. Now, I'm a firm believer in compact and subcompact guns are great for concealed carry, but a lot of times, a lot of big people, well, not big people, but people with big hands get these small guns and they don't fit. So basically, when you're holding a firearm in your hand or a handgun in your hand, if the grip doesn't go the whole length of your palm, that gun is too small for you. 
because you got to compensate for the recoil. By that grip not filling up the palm of that hand and it's shorter, you got to remember that recoil is going to make you and the gun do something different and the shot is not going to be as comfortable as it will be with the full size. All right, somebody says, all right, I want to buy a Desert Eagle. What are you telling them? No, not for the first handgun. Why did they pick that? It's what they see in the movies, right? That's what you see on TV. The whole thing is everybody also believes that the bigger the caliber, the bigger the hole, the better you'll be. But through technology, science, and testing, a nine millimeter does as much damage as a 40 caliber. So when you weigh the two, okay, would you go ahead and settle for the 40 or would you just settle for the nine? Considering that the nine does exactly what the 40 does damage wise. It's all recoil management. It's cost too. The ammo is different. The, uh, the recoil is different. Those two. Oh yeah. So um, in competition, I shoot a 40, but my everyday carry is a nine millimeter. So the only reason I shoot a 40 in competition is for scoring reasons, because you get more points for shooting the bigger caliber, but shooting minor. Okay. I know I'm way better with shooting that nine millimeter than I am the 40, but the techniques and everything, it is, you know what it is as far as the sport goes. Somebody says, all right, I want to buy a revolver. Where are you going to show them? Where are you going to send them to? Or if you're going to, I'm not a big revolver guy. Yeah, I'm not a big revolver guy. But if Tell somebody why, does why. want a revolver, uh, what happened? It's to me, it's outdated. Okay. Right. I, I look at it more along the lines of if something happens, I don't feel there's enough rounds in a revolver. Right. But there's also mechanics with a revolver you have to understand too. That first pull. It's going to be super heavy, right? Do you have enough time to pull out that revolver and pull that hammer back to make that first pull lighter? You know, um, are you fast to do the reloads? Is it faster to just put a magazine in or is it faster to go ahead and keep those extra moon clips on you and open up that wheel, release the old ones, put the new ones in? There's a lot of um, stuff that goes with the revolver. It is easy, but I believe that you won't have as many mechanical errors with the revolver that you would have with the semi-automatic. But for me, my fallback is always going to be a semi-automatic, you know, but I had a revolver. I got rid of it, but that's just personal preference. Okay. We could start right there and, and, and go. My first thing I was trained on was a revolver. So when semi-autos hit, oh, they were always around, but, for me, I, the first 45 that I shot, the first semi-automatic firearm was in the boot camp. And they had like two rounds per private, I think. And I didn't get a chance to do squat with that thing. So I can't even, <laughs> I don't even count that. And it wasn't until later um, in the academy that um, I actually put a lot of rounds with a 9mm downrange. And we had transitioned in the 80s from revolvers as police to um, Glock. So that was like our first change. And it took some doing folks thought it was like a plug and play and it wasn't you can shoot really really fast with a revolver but you have to be trained on it and mm -hmm. folks don't have the patience for an eight-hour class for just safety much less transition in the firearm or how to how to load and unload a revolver really fast or um on the trigger pull in most police firearms they have a really, really heavy trigger on a revolver for safety because it's sitting in your holster forever in a day. And uh, they don't want the guy playing with it and doing a Barney Fife, pulling it out by accident and pulling the trigger. So they put these, they call them New York triggers. I guess New York was like the culprit of accidental discharges. So the New York trigger was super, super heavy. And once you bought a firearm, once you bought your own revolver, one of the things people always did was go to a gunsmith and get it reduced to like a self-defense thing and then once you were in the competition then it was like all right you can't have your you can't have this kind of trigger you got to have at least this it was always like a 
a poundage that you could made it, you know, standard so that it wasn't ridiculous. But when the drilling dumps, you don't even know how much pressure you have on your trigger pull, whether it's a semi or a revolver. So it's it's a training thing. It's a it's a now that we have so many uh, folks can get lost, and it just depends on the instructor. So if you get an old gray hair dude, he's gonna probably throw a revolver in your face. Um, and if you don't, you're going to get uh, a tactical dude going to tell you that's it's too slow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all good. But if you see an old dude who has never transitioned and has always used a revolver, he will keep up and it'll, it'll mess you up. And you'll be like, damn, I thought they were slow. It just depends on who has it. Yeah, I got a buddy named Travis. He lives down in Aiken, South Carolina, in that area. And he does competition shooting with a revolver. And looking at him shoot, he loves it because he looks at it more as a challenge in competition. Mm. But if you put a semi-automatic in his hand, he is very accurate. His shots are very close. He's hitting all A zones. But you put that revolver in his hand, he is just as fast you know, a few seconds at it because of the reload. Cause yeah, yeah, you got to slow down a shoots, bit. Yeah, he it shoots eight rounds. Okay, I know what he got. You know, and like I said, he's really fast with it. You know, like looking at him in competition, like for somebody who don't understand, they will look at him and be like, man, that's slow compared to somebody that's a semi-automatic. But once you put it in the world of revolvers, he is really fast with it and accurate with it as well. That was the thing I think I like about revolvers. The accuracy is surgical. Um, you can, you, you're going to hit some A shots. You're going to hit like your stuff is going to be a hole. Um, and I have to work at it with the um, semi-autos. It's, it's easier to be accurate to me with a revolver. But that's just, uh, just, just me. Um, yeah. But see, like now, you also got to remember, too, the times are different. So somebody older will tell you to get a holster and they a dependable leather. They don't need to make but, good holsters for revolvers. <laughs> yeah. But somebody from my generation, they'll tell you, okay, when it's time to get a holster, Kydex. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's just the evolution of time and yeah, yeah. the science that's with that evolution as well. Yeah. If you're going to do anything like in competition, then the revolver, no. But, but um, again, I'd give that option if a student said, I want to try both and look at the person who's not going to be competing. That person who's going to load it and put it in their drawer for like the next six months. And they're only going to come out. Then that revolver sounds pretty good. Right. There was a few classes that I gave and a few people came out with revolvers out of five people, three of them were females. And of course I would ask the question, who told you about what, that? Yeah, what made you decide <laughs> to get the revolver? Yeah. And it was always, hey, my father or my grandfather always yeah. said it. It was somebody of an older generation yeah. that steered them that way. But that is what they knew. That is what they verified. Yeah. And that was what was real for them. So you really can't talk about something that you don't know. It's just like when everybody keeps saying that same analogy. If somebody breaks into my house and I pull out the shotgun and I rack it, they're going to turn the other way. How do you know that? Right. That might just be indication like, okay, we got to hunker down and fight through this. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you really don't know. Shotguns. That's always like a thing. Should a new person buy a shotgun? Depending on the reason for. Now, if you're getting it for self-defense, that's a toss-up. Right. So you're protecting your house. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. But it's also depending on the loads that you're putting in there also. Yeah. Folks don't know about the ammo. Yeah. So like I can give you a shotgun and if I put a slug in there, you gotta remember that slug round will travel for at least a quarter of a mile if it doesn't hit anything. And when it does hit something, you are responsible for whatever it hits <laughs> when it's at least that barrel. Yeah, slug you know? is like a 50 caliber piece of lead. Yes. Yeah. And then birdshot, uh, that's enough to wake somebody up if they come into your house, turn them around and run the other way, you know? And then 
you have like a beanbag option, you know, um, will that really deter anybody or will it just be enough to thump them to make them like, okay, just wait till he runs out or reload. And all of it is, it depends because you can get, you get somebody with a beanbag with a big old puffy coat on Mm -hmm. and they just look at you, you stun them for a second. They don't believe they're not dead yet and they recover and come back at you. The same thing can happen with birdshot. If they're on something and the painkillers is working pretty good, plus Mm -hmm. the adrenaline cocktail, they ain't coming. So most of the time when you're doing something to defend yourself, you want to make them stop. You want, you want to just cut off their whole neural system and, uh, so they don't have a choice. So it's not like a training or um, conditioning thing they've done to themselves or, or the state they're in, that their body, you want to make it physically impossible for them to continue to hurt you or to harm you. So whatever you pick, you're going in that direction, not uh, sound, not uh, the racking, because I can put that on my phone app, make that sound like a real thing. Um, and right. they think about it too. Like, it ain't got no gun. That's an app. Or... Uh, fake dog barking, all that stuff. You got you to come real when it's about criminals and, and what you're trying to do. And if your life is not in danger, the aftermath of all this stuff is going to really come back at you. Yeah. So a lot of older people, and this was a debate from like the early 2000s, what's the best firearm to have for home defense? You know? He's still talking about yeah, they're still talking about it, but my personal opinion, it's whatever you're more familiar with because yeah. you can have a shotgun, but if you're not trained with the shotgun, but you shoot a handgun every weekend, right. you better get that handgun because you're going to ask questions about that shotgun, and that's the wrong time to pull out that shotgun is when you need it if you're not trained on it. You know? That's totally so, true. Yeah, so my personal opinion is whatever you decide to get, just make sure you get trained on it because – once that uh-oh moment hits, your file cabinet is only going to go back to the last piece of training that you had that's relevant. You know, so you can't get training four months ago and think that's still consistent, all right? But if you train something like every two weeks, every week, you know, every month, that's a little bit better than over that course of time, you know? So, so you're saying I can't just buy it, put it in my drawer, and I'm safe. No, no, no. Nobody has though that Superman ability like that. <laughs> and well, we you see gun, that a though. lot with people. Yeah, I mean, you see that a lot with people with the CWPs. Everybody is now, hey, I want to get my CWP because what's going on and they want to protect themselves and their family. But just because you have a CWP doesn't mean you know what to do with that firearm when it's time to pull it out. And a CWP is concealed weapons pistol or it's different depending on which state you're in, what they call it. Correct. Um, people want to go from, I have no gun in my house to carrying um, concealed. And there's a few steps in between there. There's, there's some stuff that you have to know before you're actually going to carry on your person, shooting and moving, shooting in a vehicle, shooting from cover, shooting from concealment. Um, the laws about moving around. There's a whole lot between, I just bought this gun for the first time and you don't even know the, cyclic rate of your firearm you don't know what ammo it shoots best um you don't know that some law some states have illegal ammunition that you can't buy but they might sell it to you anyway and then you're putting it in your firearm you don't know so there's some steps that you have to take you have to know about that stuff and you want to poo-poo the training instructor and cut a corner because he's charging me a hundred dollars i can't believe it (laughs) yeah so like like i've always said to everybody else you can't go from your current state to John Wick status in three learning sessions. In order for you to shoot accurate like that, it's going to take you at least a year. And that's constant all the time training. And let's just say every other week, you know, cause you got to reinforce what was told to you and you got to keep practicing. And of course, when it gets driven into your subconscious and now it's muscle memory, now you go ahead and you go to the next step and then that process repeats itself all over again. Yeah. I used to shoot every week because I had government ammo. I was shooting OPP. I was shooting other people's <laughs> ammo, man, all the, all the all, other people's pistols and stuff. But as soon as I got out of the government, 
and I was doing this thing on my own. It got really, really expensive. And it slowed down to a point where when I was training somebody and I was going to do a demonstration, I was actually worried for a minute. I was like, okay, I'll make sure I don't do not drop my rounds here. And now that I go once a month, maybe I ain't teaching nobody. I'm just going to be talking, but the, you know, <laughs> it's, it's real to think, to think, and I, and I thought I was John Wick at one time, the, um, the, the point from that, from, from my John Wick days till now, it's a long divide. Like I just took out a couple of groundhogs in my property recently and it took me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the first couple, they got a, they got a pass. I was like, Oh man, my windage is off. <laughs> but them last two got it. I was like, yeah, okay. We back now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once, once you get back into it, it comes back to you just like a bicycle, you know, but um, it just take a little bit of time. You'll, you'll, you'll get it back. But yeah, the first two, first two groundhogs got a pass. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, regardless of um, whatever the first handgun is or the first firearm, you have to reinforce that with training. You can't just get it and expect just because it's in your hand, I can just point it and pull the trigger. It's not that easy, you know. Just like when you was a baby, when you first learned how to walk, it was a learning process for you. <laughs> You know, like Call of Duty. Yeah. Do I play Call of Duty? I said this ain't. It's not like Call of Duty. I just it just won't hit automatically. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, like the learning curve from younger years to now. I technology is swaying everything because I honestly believe that in order for the knowledge to keep going, you have to teach people to keep it going because you got to remember what was it world war one or world war two they dissolved the sniper sections in the military and then when they needed it again they had to reinvent the wheel when they already had all that knowledge beforehand and nobody actually preserved it but when they needed it they had to reinvent it and then somebody was like oh okay now we got to move forward from this point on you know so it was like a lot of networking between companies and you know, actually people on the ground doing the work. But in the end, history repeats itself. And we're at that point right now because the generation that we're we about to pass the baton to, if they don't get active in this, their children's children are not going to be knowing anything what we're talking about with the four fundamentals or you know, how to actually sight in a, a rifle at a hundred yards. That's a skill right there. Yeah. And by then it's going to be what, 80 years from now, Hey, we got this. How do we use this? Or what do we supposed to do? Is right? there an app for this? Yeah. So like YouTube might not be around by then or all those videos from this day and age might be in an archive someplace that you can't pull up. Yeah, I got a boatload of VHS tapes. I ain't think we'll ever go away, but they, they're gone, <laughs> man. You can't go back to that stuff. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that is it. So. Don't don't think that, that you won't be old one day. If, you, if you're lucky, you'll get here. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you remember your first handgun that you purchased? Yeah, my first handgun was a, was a llama. No, take that back. It was a red, it was a Ruger Red Hawk 357. Hmm. Single shot, six with a barrel like eight inches long Mm -hmm. Um, thought I was doing something. I bought it from a staff sergeant on base and uh, it was kind of like, excuse me while I whip this thing out. It was, it took a minute, man, for that barrel to come out of the holster. And uh, and then it was like single shot, uh, which made you give you tons of time to like miss the target. But I got real good shooting jackrabbits in the desert um, and, and crazy little stuff like that. And then the next thing was, um, a llama nine millimeter. And then I thought I was the stuff then because I was shooting a nine. And that, I didn't know that was like the cheapest gun in the pawn shop that I bought it from. The um, right. Shot some hot ammo and blew the extractor off of it and to get it, get work done on it for the first time. Hmm. Didn't even know. Uh, so you don't know what you don't know. Like I didn't know that that wasn't like a good brand. I mean, I thought gun is a gun, but no, nah, they're not, they're not all made equal. Today, the, the firearms are made a whole lot better than they were 
prior to 2000. Uh, right. They got everybody's CNC machined. They're all got tolerances there. Some of these things are almost like um, match grade shooting um, compared to the, the 1911s and the stuff that we had earlier days where you had to go to a gunsmith to get it fixed because it was going to be, it rattled or stuff came off of it. Eventually it was just, it's a whole different process today. The guns are a better quality. That's very true. Um, I was helping somebody a few weeks ago and they had one of those sky weapons, SCCY. Yeah. I've only seen them in, on TV. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm explaining to the female, you know, how to line up the sights. She's doing everything she's supposed to do. And the rounds were hitting way low. And she was like, well, I'm doing everything. I said, I see you doing everything. But once again, this goes back to the reliability of the firearm that we talked about. All right. Whatever or however this firearm is made, what you're looking at, it's going to be lower. So here, shoot my firearm. And I put the Smith & Wesson in her hand. And then wherever she was looking, that's where it was going. I said, just take your time. Don't try to go fast. She did it. And she said, why is that? Once again, there's other factors in there. Look how long that pull is before the gun goes bang. You know, um, how much are you shaking? How much are you moving? You know, and then the same thing when I got behind it and I'm just sitting there taking my time pulling it, all the shots were hitting low and I was aiming center mass the whole time. You know, oh, so I have, I have three Glocks and my first generation Glock, the oldest one I have that's been around since 85 is the most accurate. Really? Yeah. It doesn't have any of the cool finger grips. It doesn't have that the finish is all gone off of the thing. But I can dot an eye with that old Glock. And the other one, not so much. It's, they're, they're not even close. And it's the same hmm. mullet behind the, behind the gun. So I can't blame can't blame me on all of it because <laughs> I got all three. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I never owned a Glock. Um, I've shot plenty of them, but I, I never owned one. And there's a representative from Glock. We talk quite regularly, and um, he's asked me to come down there plenty of times to tour the factory and everything. And, and when I was about to go down there, that's when COVID had happened. Oh, and, okay. of course, that's the only reason why I didn't go. But we still talk to each other, and we're just waiting for this whole situation to die down, yeah. and then we're going to make it happen. Oh, that's cool. How I got introduced to Glock was – I was in Fletzy at the time, and they had a rep come on on the police academy base to actually show us. It was kind of like um, what you call the industry day, and they were showing off this new polymer firearm, and everybody was like going, boo, it's ugly. Um, and this guy was like, let me show you what we can do. And he took um, the lower and put a string behind our car, and we dragged it around on base all day. And he pick, picked it up through the you know top half on it and uh, shot accurately, but it's just rubber bouncing around basically on plastic bouncing around, and uh, I thought, wow, this thing is something. And then the movies took it. I remember when uh, Bruce Willis was screaming about, "He's got a Glock. It's plastic. It's going to come through the airport." And I thought that ain't true. <laughs> that the whole top slide is steel, so it's gonna it's gonna yeah. register. That was a fear, man, back in 85, that uh, these new plastic guns, and they came in a Tupperware-looking bowl. I mean, it was like, it was just so different. Like, you had all these, all these older cats that was shooting the um, IDPA and the IPSC and some other stuff, and they spent big money to get their guns chromed out and, and really, really nice, and you had this ugly, ugly little square gun that mm -hmm. shot pretty good. It just looked like hell, um, but it grew on you, and then it became like the thing for a long time. Yeah, one thing about Glock is that I do believe they revolutionized the semi-automatic world, but at the same time, I honestly believe the reason why you always see Glocks in movies, hear about them in various songs, and just everybody's go-to is because they had a great marketing campaign back in the 80s. And they pumped a lot of money into came, they came to our they came to the academy. So they got all the <laughs> new cops. Yeah. And they, once they did that, it blew up for them. And then everybody has to play catch up because Smith and Wesson had that um SD series, SV, SVD, SD series. 
And even when you look at the M&P version of Smith & Wesson, that is nothing but a direct reflection from Glock. So yeah. they actually made it better what Glock started. Yeah. And then everybody just upped their game. So almost all guns got better after that. So they were like just barely getting by. Everybody's copying off of Browning's, copying off of um, other old uh, designs up until that point. And they got like real creative and stuff right. started to change. So it was kind of a, it was good for the movement. Yeah. But Glock has not changed their body design since the beginning. No. It's still the same thing. So it's one of those type things. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Yeah, it's like Model T Ford. You know, it's, you can get any color you want, as long as it's black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it right there. So, but um, first time I actually shot a Glock, it was over in Germany, and I was doing the Shoes and Snare Award, and that's nothing more than a German marksmanship award that they give to their soldiers. But because we're Allied forces, you know, with the German military, we can actually wear that on our military uniforms as well so i ended up doing it and i got the gold out of it i wanted the silver and the only reason i wanted the silver is because i think it looks better on the uniform right but i ended up getting the gold so i was just like okay it is what it is <laughs> oh that's cool okay so we're talking about beginners shotguns how about ars is ars a good gun for a good rifle good system for a beginner for their home defense or for whatever they think they need for it? I honestly believe the AR is the better firearm because the AR platform complements a handgun, a semi-automatic handgun. It does the same exact thing except for your arm and hand positions are in different positions. But outside of that, it's just like operating a semi-automatic handgun. It's easy to use and it's just basic that you can expand on that basic knowledge and take it to the next level many times over. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the AR. I, like I said, it, if I had my choice, the AR would be my go-to like in any situation. How about over penetration? You're talking about the slugs. How about that? 5.56 mm. round. Uh, like I said, it's easy. It, it isn't like the recoil is going to no. kick you back. <laughs> like you're trying to shoot like it's uh, loud, 357 though. for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it can be also depending on the muzzle brake. So the muzzle brake is that science. So basically, like if you get a Smith & Wesson um, AR-15, the M&P-15, uh -huh. the way that muzzle brake is designed, it does something like it bubbles the air and it's not as loud as it would be a regular M4 or an off the shelf AR-15, you know? So like I said, Smith & Wesson puts a lot of science into their stuff, but there are other muzzle brakes out there that, um, that pretty much does the same thing, you know? So I like the dead air silencer, um muzzle brakes you know only because say again describe how that looks okay it's um you got two versions of it the version that i have is rounded and it has like the um mini windows i think it has three windows on the end of it whereas the gas can like escape so it's like the flash so once that gas escapes that's what's going to keep the firearm from doing the heavy jumping on the recoil. Okay. So, but if you can um, get the gas to dissipate on an equal platform, the recoil will be a whole lot easier, you know? So what they actually did was it was actually made for the suppressor, but at the same time, like you said, the muzzle brake does two things. It works hand in hand with the suppressor, but at the same time, if you don't have the suppressor, it still does what it's supposed to do. So I have, the um, dead air silencer muzzle brake on both my AR-15 and my long range rifle on the M&P, not on the Ruger. Okay. Now I was at the range the last time I was at the range and this young guy came in trying to sell a Smith and Wesson AR and the guy was 
going to hurt him real bad. And I, I felt real bad. He's like, how much can I give for? How much will you buy for? And I think he wanted that thing for 400 bucks. And I, hmm. I, I told the guys like, walk away. Don't, don't sell <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. It's like, it was like a crime. I didn't want him to get taken, man. It's like, that's yeah. like, you all really bad, man. Yeah. So, and another thing you got to also look at is just like we talked about having that comfort with the handgun, you know, the AR-15 is the same way, you know? So do you get like a thicker um, guard rail? a thinner guardrail, a thinner grip, a thicker grip, you know, so you have options with the furniture when it comes to AR-15. But once again, there are so many companies that are putting these um, firearms together, you have options. So you just don't have to get one, you know. Um, Only reason I was saying the Smith & Wesson AR-15 is because I actually have one. And the one thing I don't like about it is, is that it has a thin grip because I got big hands at the grip is too small. But my other AR-15, it compliments me well because literally when I went to go get it built, they was looking at everything. Okay, hold this grip, hold this grip. Okay, we're going to put this grip on it. Okay, your arms are this long. Okay, we're going to put this um, handrail on it. Okay, cool. So it's customized to me. Yeah. If you're living in the city versus living in a country, you might not get a chance to practice or train with a rifle or a shotgun. So you want to make sure that you don't get caught up on that too. Cause if you buy somebody else's, I mean, you got a great deal and you, you just bought a, I don't know, AK 47 clone. Um, but you never get to shoot it and you definitely don't train with it. It's not helping you much. So be careful of trying to save money and, not have an opportunity to learn what you own. Correct. Got to get that training and make sure you find a reputable trainer in your area. Just because somebody claims they train with the firearm, do the research and background on them and actually listen to um, other people. Look for the testimonials that people say about that instructor as well. And you're going to have your fans and your haters too. So you got to weed through that stuff as well. All right, man, I've not held you a long time, but what's um, what's some good stuff that we missed about um, a beginner's first gun, stuff that they should think about and how they can reach you if they have some questions? All right. Um, like I said, if you feel like we missed something, please reach out to me and you can just email me at info at mwtactical.com or go to Facebook and look up m-wtactical and Instagram at Munitions Weapons Tactical, and you can contact me on all three of those platforms. I will get back to you, and we can continue this conversation if it's your first firearm, and we can help guide you to get you something that will fit and work for you properly. Most definitely, and if you missed all that, the information will be in the show notes, so you don't have to memorize anything. I'll make sure I put all his contact information there. So just look at the show notes however you hear this uh, episode. All right, Mike, thanks, man. And um, until next time, keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Man, we back together again. It's all cool. (laughs) (laughs) They have tried to divide us, but you're held strong. We have neighbors and family that don't know how cool you are, but I do. Help me and support this podcast. Help me be the goodwill ambassador for our side. Nobody likes to start over. Together, we can do this thing. Go to patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. Did you get it? Patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. What Google can teach you about the National Rifle Association. You know, this week, the NRA has been trending. There's been a big announcement about the Attorney General seeking to boost it out of New York State. There are quite a few older members that are hunkering down and saying, we will stand with the NRA. There are younger ones, tacticals and millennials and those that are 
having grown up with those same traditions that are saying, who needs them? Where do you stand in this whole debate? What can Google teach you about the National Rifle Association? I'm going to try to interweave some of my own thoughts as well as some of the facts that I know. The National Rifle Association is a gun rights advocacy group based in the United States. It was founded originally to advance rifle marksmanship. Yeah, that's what it was really here for in the beginning. It was chartered in the state of New York on November 16th, 1871 by Army and Navy Journal editor William Church and Captain George Wingoat. On November 25th, 1871, the group voted to elect its first corporate officers, Union Army Civil War General Ambrose Burnside, who had worked as a Rhode Island gunsmith and was elected the president. When Burnside resigned on August 1st, 1872, Church succeeded him as president. Union Army records for the Civil War indicate that his troops fired about 1,000 rifle shots for each Confederate hit causing General Burnside to lament to his recruits, one out of ten soldiers who are perfect in drill and the manual of arms only knows the purpose of the sights of his gun or can hit the broad side of a barn. And the generals attributed this to the use of volley tactics devised for earlier, less accurate, smoothbore muskets. So they decided that they were going to create this organization to help with marksmanship. It grew. Ambrose Burnside, Union Army General, Governor of Rhode Island, and the first president of the NRA recognized the need for better training. So Wingate sent emissaries to Canada, the UK, and Germany to observe militia and Army's marksmanship training programs with plans provided by Wingate. The New York legislator funded the construction of a modern range, recognizing a need for better training. Ain't that something? This thing is at Creedmoor in Long Island for long-range shooting competitions. And this range officially opened June 21st, 1873. The Central Railroad of Long Island established a railroad station nearby with trains running from Hunter's Point, connecting boat service to 34th Street, and the East River, allowing access from New York City. Believe it or not, the first big range was in New York City or nearby. The NRA organized rifle clubs in other states and many other National Guard organizations sought NRA advice to improve members' marksmanship. Isn't that something from how we've changed, right? Former President Ulysses S. Grant served as the NRA's eighth president and General Philip H. Sheridan as its ninth. The U.S. Congress created the National Board of the Promotion of Rifle Practice in 1901 to include representatives from the NRA. National Guard, and the United States Military Services. A program of annual rifle and pistol competitions was authorized and included a national match open to military and civilian shooters. In 1907, the NRA headquarters moved to D.C. to facilitate the organization's advocacy efforts. Springfield Armory and Rock Island Arsenal began the manufacture of the M1903 Springfield mm, in 1910. The director of civilian marksmanship began manufacture of that M1911 pistol for NRA members in, in August of 1912. Until 1927, the United States Department of War provided free ammunition and targets to civilian rifle clubs with a minimum membership of 10 United States citizens at least 16 years of age. Until the 70s, the NRA was nonpartisan. Previously, the NRA mainly focused on sportsmen, hunters, target shooters, and downplayed gun control issues. Who would have known that that was the original roots of the National Rifle Association? But the passage of the Gun Control Act galvanized a growing number of NRA gun rights activists, including a guy by the name of Harlan Carter. In 1975, it began to focus more on politics and established its lobbying arm. We also now know as the ILA, the Institute for Legislative Action, with Carter as director. The next year, its Political Action Community, or PAC, the Political Victory Fund, was created in time for the 76 election elections. In 1977, the annual conventions were a defining moment for the organization and came down to be known as the Cincinnati Revolution. 
or a Cincinnati coup, depending on who you're talking to. Leadership planned to relocate the headquarters to Colorado and to build a $30 million recreational facility in New Mexico. But activists within the organization, whose central concern was the Second Amendment rights, defeated the incumbents and elected Carter as executive director and Neil Knox as head of ILA. Insurgents included that Carter and Knox had demanded new leadership in part because they blamed incumbent leaders for existing gun control legislation like the Gun Control Act and believed that no compromise should be made. With a goal to weaken the Gun Control Act, Knox's ILA successfully lobbied Congress to pass the Firearms Owners Protection Act of 1986 and worked to reduce the powers of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Slow down, man. Get excited. Start talking about this stuff. In 1982, Knox was ousted as director of the ILA, but began mobilizing outside the NRA framework and continued to promote opposition to gun control laws. At 1991, the National Convention, Knox's supporters were elected to the board and named staff lobbyist Wayne LaPierre as the executive vice president. The NRA focused its attention on the gun control policies of the Clinton administration. Knox again lost power in 1997, and he lost re-election to a coalition of moderate leaders who supported Charlton Heston, even though in the past, Charlton Heston was in support of a lot of gun control. This is right when I came in. I came in right in the midst of all this stuff. Wayne was brand new. Remember going to a cookout that he was at, shared a hot dog with the guy. All this stuff was swirling around. Neil Knox was there. I met him for the first time. He introduced me to that he had two young sons. They were my age or around my age. It was like a weird thing. I didn't know about all the, the revolt in Cincinnati, the stuff that had happened in the 70s. But I was the result of being, um, what's a good word for it? A neutral party amongst all the foolishness. I became a good friend with Charlton Heston. I thought he was the coolest dude I had known. I didn't even know how cool he was until having a conversation with him. I learned so much back then, but it didn't dawn on me what was going on until later. All the power struggles within NRA, I was oblivious because I was just happy to be in the mix. I was a brand new firearms instructor, tactical firearms guy. I was trying to make a difference in the neighborhood. I was trying to put my shingle out there as a firearms instructor and there was a huge war going on in the background. Yeah, something. Flash forward a little, little bit of years. May 20th, 2016, the NRA endorsed Donald Trump in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Time of that endorsement, before Trump became an official Republican this time, it was kind of unusual because the NRA usually endorses Republican nominees toward the end of the general election. The NRA said this early endorsement was due to a strong gun control stance of Hillary Clinton. In that 2016 United States presidential election, the NRA reportedly spent more than $30 million in support of Donald Trump, more than any other independent group in that election, and three times what is spent in the 2012 presidential election. As a former intelligence personnel, I got to add the Russian influence piece. Investigations by the FBI and special counsel Robert Mueller, you might have heard about this, resulted in indictments of Russian agents on charges of developing and exploiting ties with the NRA to influence U.S. Pol politics. Um, you, you probably missed this stuff, but the deputy governor of the Central Bank of Russia, a guy by the name of Alexander Torshin, is suspected of illegally funneling money and an intelligence life that's called a pass-through through the NRA to benefit Trump's 2016 campaign. In May 2018, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee released a report saying they had obtained a number of documents that supported and suggested that the Kremlin used the NRA as a means of accessing and assisting Mr. Trump in his campaign through Torshin and his assistant, Maria Butina, and that the Kremlin may have also used the NRA to securely and secretly fund the campaign. Torshin, a lifetime NRA member who is close to Russian President Vladimir Putin, also known as the former head of the KGB, has been implicated in money laundering by Spanish authorities who have characterized him as a godfather and a major 
Russian criminal organization. Butina was arrested on July 15, 2018, and charged with conspiring to act as an unregistered agent of the Russian Federation and using Republican operative Paul Erickson for cover and connection as she developed an influence operation designed to advance the interest of the Russian Federation. The FBI acquired an email Erickson had sent to an acquaintance in 2016 stating, quote, unrelated to specific presidential campaigns, I've been involved in securing a, quote, very private line of communication between the Kremlin and GOP leaders through, of all conduits, the NRA. Folks don't know what to think of that and like to glaze over it, but again, because it was my vocation, this is serious crap to me. But moving on, the NRA has also been criticized for insufficient defense of African-American gun rights and providing muted and delayed responses in gun rights cases involving black gun owners. Others argue that the NRA's inaction in prominent gun rights cases involving black gun owners is a consequence of their reluctance to criticize law enforcement, noting NRA support for Otis McDonald and Shanine Allen. And in a well-publicized 2016 case, Flandro Castillo an African-American and legal gun owner who was fatally shot by a police officer during a traffic stop while reaching for his wallet, Castillo had a valid firearms permit and informed the police of his gun prior to the shooting. There's some, there's some shenigity behind all of it, like they're saying that he, had, he was in possession of a controlled substance and a firearm simultaneously, which is illegal. Um, but there's just so much stuff. And then we're not even talking about the, the money. The money that has been squandered, the money that has been used to pay off politicians for years, the um, the high price of um, people's salaries, that um, it's an old boys club of the utmost. It's hard to debate that when you have um, an organization that is supposedly representing of all firearms owners, and it seems like it only caters to those who like NASCAR and country music. So where do you go? Where do you sit on this occasion? It seems it's split that if you are old school, if you are um, old gray-haired dude, you support the NRA. You supported them their whole life, and you won't stop now. There is a, a growing number of people who don't support Wayne LaPierre because he is not the NRA, but he thinks he is. The board of directors thinks that he is, and everybody who's in charge right now thinks that he is. What do you say, Ken? Well, I know they have failed in their fiduciary and oversight responsibilities. I know they have not been on board with the rest of the world. I know that uh, if I was making a million dollars a year, I would not want to give up any power either. The NRA right now is almost like a small country. And even though they're being sued right now by both the um, District of Columbia Attorney General and the State of New York Attorney General, we still need them. We need an overhaul, though, like the size of a giant enema, we need to get rid of everybody that's there and start afresh. I, w- I would like to see uh, the whole board become just advisors and new folks come into play. I would like to see a new management, and you don't have to fire anybody right away, but you can definitely have them as advisors, the folks that are there now, and not just shuffle people around, but actually vet them, see where their head is, see where their heart is, um, there are some people who are on the board that are legit, and then there's a whole bunch of them, though, that are just yes people to just kind of salute and move on. There's a tactical younger crowd um, that doesn't see the value, but I'm here to tell you that if you look at everything that the NRA has ingrained for, since 1871, you can't replace them. You can't get rid of them because even the statute for firearms training um, as an instructor most states are going off of things that the NRA put in place. Even if you replaced the lesson plan, did the syllabus, went through and hooked all the, the notes and dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, you'd still be at a loss from all the work that's gone ahead. You can't lose the NRA as it is. But we can refix it. We can replace the people. We can change the, organiza- the organization. That's what I would like to see myself. There are a whole lot of organizations that would love to take the NRA's place in your heart and wallet. They do. And that's probably the only reason why they say anything. Whole bunch of haters. But I'm hating it for a different reason. I'm, I'm critical of my organization because I'm a life member. Because they haven't been 
fair. They haven't been representatives. They haven't done a third of the stuff they could do for the membership. It's just business as usual, and we let it go. There's been some revolutions like the Cincinnati Revolt. There's been, yeah, there's been some coups. You had the one not only in Cincinnati, but you had the one recently with Colonel North and um, when they ousted um, Chris Cox. There's been a whole bunch of fights in the last 15 years, small ones that folks don't even know about. Folks have been trying to fix it from within and getting butchered and hammered and fired and replaced by sycophants, by drones, by people who will nod and carry on. And that's all my opinion. I gave you what I already know, what's according to Google, what's in the Word, what's in the registry. I got friends on every side. As soon as the AG from New York sent out that um, scathing paper, I got a copy of it from somebody. I also know those who can't wait for the overthrow of the place, and they want to burn it to the ground. And I know those, I have good friends of those who say, no, we must keep the NRA. I'm a benevolent member. I'm an ego member. I'm a whatever member. And my granddaddy's daddy, daddy was a part of this organization, and we can save it. I'm in a group of let's keep it, let's fix it, let's give it a transfusion. I would like um, very much to get a giant surge of like, I don't know, two and a half million new gun owners to join the NRA, but only after it changes, only after we get rid of some dead weight, only after we get through clean house. I would like for folks to be mobilized and ready to act, to take their money, to save their money, to be life members, to be ready to just throw this giant bucket of money in this organization for the Second Amendment, but not give it up now, but to hold it, to be a mobilizing force waiting to to acknowledge that we're going to save it together, but then hold it and wait. Let people know that we got it. Let them know that we are with you. Let them know that we're a part of this change, but we're not going to put a Band-Aid on this amputation. That's just my thoughts. I would love to know what you think about this whole shebang. Hit me back up in the comments, however you hear this show, and let me know. All right, that's it for this week. I want to thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing. I said some stuff there. I want to know what you think. I really want to hear your comments, however you heard this episode. And I want to introduce you to the Reverend Ken Blanchard show. You can find it at kenspodcast.com. And let me know what you think about that one, too. Just in case nobody has told you this today, I love you. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Until next week. Shalom, baby. Until next time, friends. To keep in touch with Ken and his cause, head over to blackmanwithagun.com.